Welcome to Pop Screen, part of the Geek Show Podcast Network, where the Geek Show's podcast dedicated to the good, the bad, and the preposterous of movies either starving about or by pop stars. No other podcast covers such a broad range of musical and cinematic genres, from documentaries to science fiction, from country and western to hip-hop. I'm Graham Williamson. I'm a writer for thegeekshow.co.uk and a regular columnist at horrified.com, the British horror website. I also make short films and write inlay booklets for second run you can find my letterbox at letterbox.com slash gdw i'm joined this week by i'm aiden Facken. i am also a contributor to the geek show i work in the film industry um and if you want to see my work good luck because i've signed god knows how many ndas um so you have to wait a year before they're released yeah aiden works primarily on snuff movies which is why they are so secretive um but you know <laughs> It, it's a, Graham. Look, it's a tough industry. You have to break into it any way you can. I work with Abel Ferrara. Woohoo! <laughs> yes. Uh, this week, we're taking you back to the early 90s. And in 1994, it would have seemed inconceivable that a film like this week's pick would have been made. After Kurt Cobain died, there were claims and counterclaims, desperate attempts to get into his tortured psyche, claims that he was or he wasn't the voice of his generation, and of course, the inevitable death conspiracy theories that accompany anyone who dies in the public eye at the tender age of 27. Nowadays, in 2015, Brett Morgan can make a film like Montage of Heck, a documentary which was controversial and divisive for entirely different reasons. So mm. you've come a long way, baby. Uh, this is a part animated, heavily based in his journal's exploration of Kurt Cobain's life and celebrity. It is directed, as we said, by Brett Morgan. And is this the first time you'd watched it, Aidan? No, it's the second. I did this on Eclectica about... When did I do this again? It was like very early days, wasn't it? I remember someone did it on Eclectica. I couldn't remember if it was you or Ryan. It was definitely me. Yeah, I, I did it because um, I think I was just struggling to find what movies to review and like, I just saw like this turn up on Netflix. It was just like, ooh, a documentary on Kirk Cameron. Yeah. Sign me up. And to be honest with you, I don't listen to my early Eclectica reviews at all because I, I just think that dreadful to be honest <laughs> I just and I think this was one of the reasons because this was my pick to revisit this because I just feel as if it needed a bit more discussion really better than what I did on Eclectica at least well I would agree that it needs discussion yeah it is a substantial interesting film and I have this like barometer for documentaries that we cover on this show because obviously these days there's a documentary about basically everyone who's ever picked up a microphone so you have to kind of apply some editorial standards and my usual standard is if I can imagine it airing as like an original piece of programming on Friday night BBC4 we're not doing it Um, (laughs) yeah God, I did see, like, there was another Nirvana documentary from BBC4, How Nirvana Shook Britain or something like that, which is on my YouTube recommendations. Right. Just like, well, that well, that was quick if they've been releasing it that early, because it's 2021. Yeah, yeah. And it's so, like, 
I mean, I don't mind those documentaries. They can be fun to watch, but I do think if we're doing something for pop screen, it has to be interesting musically and cinematically. Mm, yeah, I agree. Yeah. And it also contributes to the idea of our ever-growing uh, tendency on this podcast to cover at least a film from every single member of the 27 Club. I don't yeah, know how we've absolutely. done this, personally. Because yeah, yeah. <laughs> we've done Amy Winehouse, we've done Jim Morrison, uh, now we're on Kurt Cobain. Uh, so who's next? Hendrix, Joplin and Richie Edwards to go, right? Something like that. Yeah. Uh, don't forget Brian Jones and Robert Johnson as well. Oh, yes, of course. Yeah. Hmm. What a shame that we used our Rolling Stones slot on Free Jack, as well as what a shame that we did that for so many other reasons. <laughs> yes. Yeah. So... um you said that you watched this because you were excited to see a documentary about Kurt Cobain. So I take it you're a Nirvana fan, right? I'm a heavy Nirvana fan, yeah. I've been in a Nirvana mood ever since... I'm saying my early teenage years, like a lot of people, because I discovered them, I think, pretty much after... Because during my early teenage years, you know, it was dominated by a lot of things, like anti-establishment, because a lot of uh, kids in the classroom would talk about the latest Cheryl Cole single or the latest, you know... Yeah, pop release like Katy Perry and Lady Gaga and things like that. It was a dark was, time for music. I think we we agree on that. Yeah, I was exactly the opposite because my friend I think got me into ACDC at the time, which was the very first rock group that I got into, and that led me into like alternative rock. And eventually, I think my dad gave me a CD a CD copy of Nevermind. Yeah, of course, iconic album as it is. Um, and pretty much since then, it's just like changed my musical landscape ever since so yeah I am a heavy Nirvana fan thank you for asking that's exciting because I mean part of the hoopla about the 30th anniversary uh, of Nevermind's release for me is remembering that I was eight years old when this album was released and I think that's why for a long time I didn't get into Nirvana because never Nevermind's a bit tough for an eight-year-old you know it's, it's it not hits, yeah <laughs> <laughs> So like my, my first reaction after, I, I'd greatly enjoyed the sort of acid house invasion of the charts when I was a kid, because of course, when you're a kid, you don't pick up on the drug influences. You're just like, hey, everything's really bouncy and energetic and fun. I like this. And then it's like the depressed American heroin addict in flannels, like grunting into a microphone. You think, what is this shit? Um, so I, I got into Nirvana much later. And for that reason, I don't think I could ever call myself a heavy Nirvana fan. But every time I hear them, I enjoy them. I don't think there's mm. any sort of lasting ill feeling from my eight-year-old snap judgment. Yeah, 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 I agree. So this documentary is quite an odd watch for me, because like I said in the introduction, I remember vaguely when Kurt Cobain died, and I remember how he was talked about back then, and it's just incredible to think that you can have a documentary that opens the archives like this, at a time mm. when, you know, as soon as he died, he, he belonged to myth, was my memory of it. Mm -hmm. You know, everyone yeah. was talking about him as a symbol of America's tortured youth and a symbol of Generation X. And to get something that felt like it got to the man would have been quite impossible in that environment. Yeah, I mean, because when you look at Kirk Cobain's image, I mean, obviously talk of him as like a spokesperson for Generation X and 
the thing is, there's not many musicians like him that get labels. I think the only person that I can think of that comes to mind is probably Bob Dylan. Yeah. The Baby Boomer Generation. And that's about it. Um, possibly John Lennon as well. But at the same time, you know, this breed of musicians like very rare to come across. And it's, it's sort of a double-edged sword, isn't it? Because by the time you get to the stage where you were famous enough and celebrated enough to be called the voice of your generation, you're probably going through things that are very different to what the average member of your generation is going through. And I think if Cobain had survived and released like even just one more Nirvana album, that would have come to a head. I think he would have found it very hard to write about things people related to when mm. your problems are on the level of all oh, vanity fairs writing that my wife used heroin during pregnancy. It's like, yeah, stressful, but it's not on the same level as someone who works as a garage mechanic in Toledo, is it? Yeah, I mean, <laughs> Jesus, it gets into some very dark territory. Mm. Yes. ridiculously dark territory and you don't really expect that because when you listen to like an album like Nevermind you immediately come to like you know the conclusion of like oh yes the record with smells like teen spirit on it come as you are lithium and all these like major rock that basically like popped like burst America through on the music scene yeah but then you get to a record like in utero and Jesus Christ half the stuff on that album in utero, it might be my favourite Nirvana album, but it is sort of interesting in light of this, because after you've listened to that, you think, well, nothing's been left on the table, has it? It's like every, surely everything mm. that Kurt Cobain thought, no matter how squirmy or unpleasant, is on that record. Mm. Yeah, I completely agree. And utero was my favourite as well, because that's Nirvana at the most unfiltered. I think, yeah, the most pounding, and I, I just love that record. Again, that's a, I think that's another like top ten album release for me. In Utero, it's kind of interesting because it it was where Cobain's problems with being a celebrity were hitting their peak. Like he'd got hmm. Steve Albini to produce it, and Steve Albini is famous for like this method of recording bands where he literally presses an old tape recorder and lets them play. It's like yeah. the, the, the most hands-off form of production you can imagine, but he wants yeah, that yeah, live sound. Yeah. And yeah, he's done that. Yeah, a lot of artists. He's worked, he's worked with Pixies, PJ Harvey, a lot of people. Big Black. He was a part of for the longest time, I think. He yeah. recorded we... my favorite Manic Street Preachers album, Journal for Plague Lovers, as well. Ooh, yeah, I think sometimes sometimes it can backfire. He did one with Jarvis Cocker, which I thought sounded kind of weedy, and I think that's. That's the danger of it. If you have a band where their primary appeal is not, you know, they rip your face off during live performances, Steve Albini's mm. version of production can can backfire a bit. But for Nirvana, it was right. And I did the record label did insist that they tone that down a bit, didn't they? Mm, yeah, I mean, you could... I think that there was a lot of production problems with that record in particular. I mean, I can't exactly remember when. I mean, I'm in the middle of listening to Heavier Than Heaven, the audio book. Oh, by, yeah. I forgot. Charles Cross or something like that. Charles Cross, remember. yeah. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Um, which is often known as like the definitive uh, Kurt Cobain biography. And you come to realise that it, it can be, you can very easily sympathise with Cobain and his band minutes. Yeah. Like, because... When even when you get to like the cover of Nevermind, 
and obviously, you know, today, like with the lawsuit, uh, with the child on that cover at the moment, which I fucking lawsuit, man. This is going to be well out of date by the time we cut that out. But that fucking lawsuit, I think that is a sentiment that will not age. <laughs> yeah, but I remember um, even when you know it got to the controversial side of the band, there is still a moment. Not people many know, Kirk Cobain had a right sense of humour about it as well. Absolutely, yeah. I mean, because obviously when you see like the um, the image of the baby on the front cover in the swimming pool chasing after the Dolly Bill, um, they actually put a sticker on like covering um, the child's genitalia, and it said, "If you don't, if you are offended by this, you are a closeted paedophile." Yes. That's fantastic. I think that's one of the funniest things I've like heard of a rock band doing. I do love that story. Mm. So it reminds it reminds yeah. me slightly of have you seen the censored version of Lord's new album that's in HMV? No, I don't think I have. No, but carry on. The the version of Solar Power where it is, let's not put too fine a point on it. It's a very sort of artistic, interestingly angled photo, but it is a picture of her ass. And mm. the <laughs> This HMV version has like a sticker over her ass uh, with the title Solar Power on it and a little picture of the sun. And you think, this must be what it's like being a pitchfork reviewer. I am literally looking at the sun shining out of Lord's ass. <laughs> I love musicians with sense of, senses of humour like that. <laughs> <laughs> oh. But yeah, that, I, I'm glad you brought up Heavier Than Heaven because that came out in... The early noughties, I want to say. Yeah, roundabout, yeah, yeah. And that was the first time there was a big kind of archive dive for Nirvana. That was the time you got the box set out, you got uh, the release of uh, You Know You're Right, was it? The you Know You're Right, yeah, yeah. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Um, one of the darkest songs they've ever recorded, really, that one. Absolutely, yeah, yeah. And also, like, reportedly kind of torn down from the original and you sort of think, what in the hell was the original like? Um, yeah. But that was also the time when you got uh, the journals released and the journals are really the primary source for montage of hair, can't they? Mm, yeah, because you can't really tell in this film whether you know, Kurt Cobain is fictionalising these entries or whether or not they actually are true. I mean, I presume they are, but um, but there's the whole story of, um, I believe, uh, in the animated sequence, I think it's like one of the first we've seen where, um, you know, he, Kurt Cobain, to uh, have his first sexual experience with a woman, he goes to see this girl with, um, like, learning disabilities or something like that. Like It's very... never clarified, yeah, because all, yeah, yeah. all of his friends just call her like slurs there isn't much of a diagnosis there yeah 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 and for the hardest time it, it can be hard to accept whether or not the watching actually happened or not or whether like Cobain's like exploring his psyche a little bit in that segment yeah so you do wonder about that yeah there is a lot of uh fictionalized stuff there is a lot of scenes of comic books that he drew and you, I know that some of his associates from his time in Aberdeen not that one uh, have yeah. said the story about the disabled girl isn't true, but uh, maybe it isn't. But you also kind of think if that was a story about your childhood, you would deny the fuck out of it. So I, I don't know really. Mm, yeah, I, I think it's a tricky subject, but at the same time, it, it does. You do get an insight into his mind a lot, 
mm. and that's um, how his working process is that way. And you know, you, you can appreciate stuff like that. Yeah. And I think Brett Morgan has an understanding of what the value of this material is. It's not just a sort of a, a prod around, you know, the gravestones. He understands that when you are looking through this material, you are looking for stuff that is influential on Nirvana, on the finished art, right? Mm-hmm. Yeah. I mean, there's a lovely moment where he's talking about Cobain's lifelong uh, gastric problems, which were really serious and were a big part of why he got onto heroin, because the medication, he, the proper medication he was given just wasn't like stopping this pain that he had all the time. Um, yeah. But it has a segment about that in his early life. And over it, it plays a sort of demo version of the riff from Heart-Shaped Box. And I thought that was that, that was just a lovely idea because what you are watching, of course, is the origin of Heart-Shaped Box. All of the visceral, mm. kind of painful, gory, revolted imagery in Heart-Shaped mm. Box is rooted in this medical problem that Cobain had. Yeah, yeah. I mean, and a lot of it's related to that. I mean, the, there's the whole segment. I mean, like a, st- a stereotypical documentary, like BBC Four documentary, will explore like the making of like a music video for Smells Like Teen Spirit, for example. Mm, yeah. And in here, it's much different. There's not a single interview over that segment during that whole scene. It's played like in less like sort of dreamlike ears. You know, you can get to see like the behind the scenes with the directors and the camera operators and the lighting technicians, et cetera. You see Cobain like um, flubbing his lines and things like that. And at the same time, you hear have like this haunting, like choir-like version of Smells Like Teen Spirit over the, over the backtrack as well. Yeah. And segments like that, I'd much prefer because you get like a sense of like, I don't know really, like, like interesting imagery that, you know, like a stereo, like I said, like a stereotypical documentary would just discuss rather than show. Yeah, yeah. No, I think that's true. I think all of those segments where they arrange the songs, the choirs or orchestras, uh, which I, I think is like could have been a really pompous idea on paper, but they all work really well in practice. I think they're done very tastefully. Hmm. Yeah, yeah. You can definitely tell that Morgan. Uh, knows how to approach his material. I mean, you know, you're, you're not expecting like a like a heavy, disgusted like guitar riff over like um, heart shaped box or something like that. It's done like very gracefully and very patiently, and I, I respect that. Yeah, mm. I think he has fun with some of it too. I mean, it's telling that one of the songs that he plays at length is Molly's Lips, which is like very hard to fit into any version of the Kurt Cobain story that's just constant trauma and a path towards death because it's a really fun energetic blast of a song but you know he he plays that almost in full as if he's saying look this is also a part of what Nirvana did you know Mm. it it isn't all you know something in the way. Yeah I mean there's also I think my favorite segment of that being used is um even, you know, because, you know, again, going back to the thing, you would expect, like, sounds like Teen Spirit, you know, played at length in full. Um, but at the very end, we have uh, the MTV performance and the last song that you they performed on that set, which was a cover of, was it Led Belly's Where Did You Sleep Last Night? It is, yes. Yeah. yeah. 
which firstly I think is just a terrific cover version in of itself. Yeah. And that's how the film ends when um, obviously Cobain's like at the end of his tether yeah. as well. I think that's just like a very tastefully done segment that just caps off his life story in a, a very, again, respectful and diverse way, really. Because it allows him to end on a triumph, doesn't it? It's like everyone who watches mm. this film, even if they're not a Nirvana fan, knows how it's going to end. It ended in a way that everyone paid attention to. But I like that it gave him the dignity of having the very last thing we see of him being this absolutely spellbinding performance that reminds you of absolutely how good his band were. Mm, yeah, completely agree. Yeah. And I think there's there's also part of it where Cobain often downplayed this, the sort of capital S significance of his band. It was important to him, hmm. but when people were writing that voice of his generation stuff, he found that a bit embarrassing. And was it in the liner notes to Incesticide? He said, look, I'd be the first person to admit that we're basically the 90s version of Cheap Trick or The Knack. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, yeah. He loved the knack as well. I, I remember he, that there's like a he, there was a mixtape that he used an awful lot, and it had like My Sharona on it. I repeat, and everything from My Sharona by the knack to like Black Flag, and it's just like bloody hell, this is a completely random mixtape. <laughs> yes. Yeah, it, it's. I mean, it is a dark film. It has some very troubling bits in it, but I think Morgan does rightly cling on to the bits where you realise that Nirvana were a band who made really catchy songs that were great live, and they did they did some other stuff, but, you know, that was a vital part of why they were big. He's even got, like, the bit with the handwritten lyrics to Lithium, and there's a little oh, yeah. animated bouncy ball that goes over them while the song Oh, yeah, so yeah. You would struggle to do that with radio-friendly unit shifter, I think, but for Lithium, it's just <laughs> right. Or rape me or something like that. Bloody hell, <laughs> yeah. it's just like... <laughs> Everyone, let's sing along to the anti-rape song. Kirk Cobain wants me to rape him, even though it's like the most misunderstood Nirvana song ever. And there's some competition for that, isn't there? I mean, people misunderstood Polly, which seems to be insane to me because that song is not hard to understand. Hmm, yeah. Just a bit of backstory on, on Polly. Polly... In background context, that was written about, um, I think, like, a 16-year-old girl who got raped at a concert, yeah. horrifically. And, um, again, that's another contender for, like, one of the darkest Nirvana songs as well. It was just like, how many of these do you have, Kurt? Bob Dylan, uh, was a, yeah. who we mentioned before, of course, was a big fan of Polly. He said that that was the song that made him realise Kurt Cobain was a real songwriter. Mm, yeah, yeah. And even if, like, people have stand against him saying, no, he's not much of a guitar player. Like, well, I'm not expecting him to be Kurt Hammett or anything like that, because there's still, like, an identity to his guitar playing that I really do like. I yeah. mean, like, with the like going back to the new rule, with the distortion, with the feedback, with the droning, like, cacophony of guitar swirls you find on that record, you can yeah. definitely tell that he is inventive and creative with that stuff as well. And that goes back, I think, to part of his problems with fame because grunge and that whole kind of countercultural scene in early 90s America, 
is about a suspicion of things being too professional, too corporate. You know, there's a there's a lovely little sort of running narrative here in their Rolling Stones covers, where the first mm. time they're on the cover of Rolling Stone, they're dressed in the way you would expect, but Kurt is wearing a T-shirt saying something like corporate magazines suck. Yeah, yeah. But when they're on the cover in utero, they're all in pinstripe suits, and it's a very obvious joke saying, look, we're part of a big corporation. Now, if this album doesn't sell, shareholders will lose value. I love that there's a brief interview, like, I think it's like for MTV or something, like, shortly after the release of, like, I don't know whether it was in Euro or never mind, but Kirk Cobain, obviously, is wearing sunglasses, but he's also dressed in, like, <laughs> Queen Elizabeth I as well. Did you yes. notice this? It's just like, wait, hang on. <laughs> wait. It's interesting looking back from today's perspective and in terms of what music is like today to see how uh, anti-macho Cobain's gender politics were, how like the root of it was not even feminist, or, although he was a feminist, but the core of what he seemed to believe was a deep, deep hatred of machismo and the way that macho mm. people had made his life a misery when he was young. Yeah, because, I mean, and that's heavily explored in, like, the early part of this, because, you know, you can tell that um, Morgan understands this, you know, for him and through. I mean, I think the first time we see his father, I think it's Don Cobain mm, as well, yeah. who's, like, basically, like, this 20-odd-year-old, at the time we first see him, at least, this 20-year-old, like, car mechanic with glasses who, um, you know, got married very quick, had Kurt, like, pretty quickly, Kurt, quickly followed as well, followed by his sister. And, you know, and Kurt, I think, displayed that sentimentality and just ideology that his, like, the hatred of his father's attitude towards women. I mean, if you listen to the song, like, Being a Son, that's obviously about, um, which I also think is from Antestacide as well, that's obviously about, um, like, a father's disapproval of how his daughter should have been a son. Yeah. Yeah, so, and... And I think that's why I attached to him so much because, you know, I I'm, come from a very similar background because I, I can't stand machoism as well when it's done wrong and done like very distastefully because all these women, <laughs> you know, they, they can't sing rock music or they can't be understood and blah, 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 and et cetera, et cetera. And I just prefer that when it's done like really white men because they knew how to do that. And it's, yeah, and it's interesting in terms of that genre, because if you are, you know, back in the late 80s when Nirvana started out, if you were a woman and you liked hard rock music, if you liked the way it sounded, you would just have to listen to a lot of really appalling sexist shit to get that sound, because that's just what hard rock was. Hard mm. rock was like men singing about groupies, that's it. So... Nirvana were like as revolutionary in their gender politics as someone like Lil Nas X is today. They mm, were yeah. bringing an attitude to a genre that had not previously accommodated that attitude. Yeah, and that's what I admire about them. There's this great story in, I think, when the Nirvana was like the headline act for like a, a gig in Argentina or something like that. And the support act was like a female punk group mm. who unfortunately died lived a very short career because they just got slaughtered on stage. They got booed, they got heckled by the crowd saying, oh, yeah, you can't, you know, they're women, they can't play rock and roll music, et cetera, et cetera. Yeah. 
and this pissed Kurt off and Chris Norman said I can do for all so that when they came out on the six they deliberately sabotaged their own performance <laughs> <laughs> there's a there's a great it's on YouTube bit bit of it but they play come as you are and then Kurt instead of like singing the verse verse of come as you are as you were you know etc etc he just goes hey 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 just like yeah i'm gonna piss you all off now because you just threw shit at these women for no reason whatsoever he did that quite a bit i mean probably it, it occurs to me that the first time i will seen nirvana because of my eight-year-old viewing habits would have been that famous episode of top of the pops where they did smells like teen spirit and kurt is singing in this very weird kind of bad lounge singer impersonation yeah, yeah. which yeah. is quite a way to be introduced to someone but it goes back to that, um, you know, segment in, again, Bohemian Rhapsody, where, um, like, Top of the Pops, where, where I think, like, Brian May says something like, oh, we can't, you know, perform live music. This is the BBC and, you know, mm. things like that. Um, and to be fair, I mean, I've, I've never liked Top of the Pops for that reason. I've always preferred, like, stuff like the old Great Whistle Test or Jules Holland. Is yeah. Better. I've always have preferred it. Just that live music is designed to be live music. But back to that MTV performance, I remember, like, Cobain said the reason why he sung like that was to imitate Morrissey. <laughs> <laughs> Which I just think is a brilliant little nugget. That's great. I didn't know that, but that has made me enjoy it even more. I think the thing about Top of the Pops is that it's kind of a, a circus, really, isn't it? That when mm. it goes out, you have this snapshot of what the charts were like. And you can have like the KLF and you can have Sonia on the same show. And it's it's just this bizarre kind of it, it's completely tasteless. And I can understand why people don't want to watch it back, but that lack of taste, that lack of value judgment was always part of the fun. Mm, yeah, completely agree. So the the thing that strikes me about Montage of Heck is that, it, like I say, it's, it's something that I would find very hard to imagine existing once upon a time, because there was a time when Cobain's legacy was fiercely fought over, like mm. not just between and the band members and Courtney Love, his widow is the most famous like thing mm. that had to be resolved before something like this could happen. Yeah, but... Yeah, because there, there, there was a lot of like hoo-ha over the release of You Know You're Right as well, wasn't there? Yes, um, yeah. Being released as a single because, you know, there's lawsuits back and forth between Courtney Love and Christopher Veselic and Dave Grohl and, and vice versa. It was just basically an overcomplicated mess that, yeah. um, you know, which is bound to happen in like circumstances such as this. So, um, so through and through, you can definitely tell that this had a lot of, love involvement shall we talk a little bit about courtney love actually i think we should i think this is the point in the yeah. podcast where we have to grasp that metal because mm -hmm. love comes into this documentary very later on she she doesn't even get like like in the last third or something like that yeah she properly gets introduced and um and i'll say this right now i'm not the biggest fan of courtney love and i know a lot of people aren't I think that's partly the reason why, because, you know, there's a lot of conspiracy theories around her saying, oh, right, she had Kurt Cobain murdered or things mm. like that, which I don't think is true at all. But it's just a matter of, I don't know whether I believe her or anything yeah. like that. I, I just find her, I don't know, it's a, it's a weird character. 
I think when yeah. you look at the reaction Courtney Love got at the time, you're really dealing with two things. And one of them is just plain sexism. You know, mm -hmm. one of them yeah. is that attitude that whenever a band split up or, you know, in this case, a band split up in tragic circumstances, the girlfriend must always be to blame. And that goes back to the Beatles and I've got no time for it. But yeah, it goes back to Yoko Ono, doesn't it? Yeah. Yeah. The, the, other thing, got, yeah. the other thing, though, is that I think in a scene like grunge, anyone like Courtney Love would be the subject of suspicion because she was like nakedly ambitious. She was mm. the, there were probably many people in grunge in retrospect who were in it because they wanted to be famous. But she was the mm. only one who was gauche enough to say, yeah. I, you know, I want a Grammy. I want an Oscar. I want to be friends with all the biggest mm. rock stars in the world. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And that was so antithetical to the way that the scene was set up. And there was a time when I hated it. I never believed any of the conspiracy theories, but there was a time in the late 90s where she was like nakedly going for a more commercial rock sound and she would send out huge lists to interviewers of all the topics that they couldn't cover and there would be mm. you know threats both legal and violent made to journalists who wouldn't comply and I found her a real tyrant but that phase in her career ended and it ended because she is ultimately a very tragic figure. You know, she was never she is, stable yeah. enough to maintain that. And you could certainly see that in the segments here, the home video footage of her and Kirk together, and mm. eventually Francis Bean being their daughter. Um, and some of those are, you know, that it's, it's completely like weird out of your mind. You know, you know, <laughs> you know, Courtney loves flashing her boobs all the time. In you know, a whole like movie, that. yeah, in which I thought movie, is, yeah. is really telling. It's like, I, I can understand getting attention by flashing your boobs, like, in the middle of a, a sports stadium, but doing it in a home movie is like, I'm pretty sure that everyone there has already seen your boobs, Courtney. Yeah, I know. It's, it's just like, it's very strange. But at the same time, they're very intimate scenes. I mean, mm. you get this whole segment of... Um, I believe, like, um, like Courtney Love, like, reading this letter of, like, I, I can't remember what it is. It's like some Rolling Stone article where they're getting a lot of flack again. Yeah. And then you just, it just, the camera just moves over to Kurt, who's dressed in a, again, dressed in a dress, has a moustache and, like, painfully imitating it at the same time. Yes. Which I yeah. think's great. And even then, like, the segments with Francis, it's just so heartfelt as well at the same time in the most darkest, messed up way. You do get yeah. a sense that they are an item together and you can't take that away from them. I think that in many ways the most affecting bit is where you hear Cobain singing the Beatles song and I love her um, to mm. Courtney. And you think, yeah, yeah, they did love each other. And I mean, the problems they had were not because Courtney Love was secretly plotting to murder him. It's because when you have a couple who were drawn together by a mutual interest in heroin, that's going to turn into a bit of a mess, I think. Mm, yeah, I mean, yeah, like I said, I, I really do enjoy, like, the home video segments in this film as well, because they're done very... Again, like, it goes back to when we covered Amy as well. Mm -hmm. Yeah. How Asif Kapadia was using that. Morgan's doing it in a slightly different fashion. I mean, you can definitely tell that this isn't really, like, like Kapadia influence. Yeah. I mean, it might be a bit, but... 
at the same time, there's enough material here where he puts his own spin on it, where it makes it different. I think one of, big, one of the big differences in it when you look at something like Amy is that Amy is trying to take you backstage, essentially. It's trying to take you into the world, you know, uh, that Amy Winehouse lived in from day to day. And there's a mm-hmm. bit of that in Montage of Heck. As you say, the, the Courtney Love segment of the film goes into that area. But I think the main mission of it is to take you inside his imagination, which is very mm. different. Yeah, because very early, like again, you see all these animated segments of like his drawings and his like disturbed sketches coming to life, the lyric sheets, like, you know, against the bouncing ball, against lithium things like that. I, I, I like that. I like that an awful lot because it mm. gets you to explore his mind and energy. And I think that's what, when I first watched it, that attached, I, I grew attached to it as well, yeah. And it also, I mean, you could argue that Cobain was part of that first really media-saturated generation, the first generation to grow up with like rock and roll and television and radio being a, mm. an integrated part of their lives. And I like that when it's trying to establish the world he grew up in. It doesn't show clips of home movies of him and his dad or whatever. It shows a bit mm. of that, but it also it shows, shows a bit, yeah. bit of that. But it also shows clips from uh, the Twilight Zone episode, It's a Good Life. It shows clips from Design for Dreaming and like 50s monster movies. And I'm certain there's a clip in there from like, I don't know whether it's Haxon or the Phantom Cabbage. It's just like, yeah, let's just throw in a clip from. Um, like Swedish silent movie, like from Victor Schoenstrom or Benjamin Christiansen. It's just like, it, it, it reminds me actually a little bit of when Julian Temple experiments with his documentary storytelling as well, where he has like, say something like Oil City Confidential, where he yeah. uses like, like all these different clips from like, say, or the ecstasy of Uncle Johnson, where he uses like clips from, um, say, like A Matter of Life and Death by Powell and Pressburger, just to illustrate this point of life or death. Very similar fashion, I find. Yeah. And I do like that stuff a lot. And I think part of the reason why it works is because of the choice of subject. That Nirvana are one of those bands that every generation needs, where if you're a fan of them, you don't just listen to the albums. You go and watch every movie that they reference. You read every book that they reference. Hmm. You know, they're there is a whole song on, I think it is on in Utero, isn't it? Scentless Apprentice, which is just retelling the story of Patrick Suskin's novel Perfume. Oh, yes. Yeah, I forgot about that. Yeah. There's also um, Frances Farmer will get her revenge on Seattle as well on that record as well. Great song. Which if you don't know, yeah, great song. If you don't know, Frances Farmer was like a very tragic Hollywood figure who I believe was from Seattle as well. Yes, um, yeah. Again, it interrelates to back to like say someone like Amy Winehouse as well. It's just like these tragic figures get referenced all the time, and when they're done tastefully like this, it's great, you know. And that's who his daughter was named after, of course, Frances Farmer. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Frances Bean Cobain. Yeah. Um, she she's come out of this disarmingly well, hasn't she, Frances Bean? I think there there was a segment where. There's a point at which we all thought, you know what, if that girl goes off the rails, we'll all understand. But she has held it together astonishingly yeah. well. I remember, and she's very, because um, even with like the tragic suicide of Kurt, she's very understanding of like mental health issues and things like that. Yeah. I mean, yeah. when 
Robin Williams passed away like a few years back. He actually, she actually reached out to, um, I think Zelda Williams on Twitter. Zelda Williams, yes, yeah. Which I just think is just a really generous and lovely thing to do, you know, because, you know, yeah. he's someone who's from like a similar wavelength who lost a father in horrific circumstances, supporting another person who's also lost like a parent in horrific circumstances. And that's, yeah, it's just a generous and loving thing to do. I like that. It goes back, I think, to the first moment that I realised I was going to like this documentary. Um, because I, I was worried going in that it was going to romanticise his mental illness. I was worried that it was mm. going to be very much the, oh, tortured artist. He saw things that none of us could handle. You know, and I think the first time it really clicked with me is very early on where his mother said uh, as a child he was, and I quote, so kind and so worried about people. Mm, yeah, and I think, yeah. Like Richie Edwards, who vanished in the same year, part of you know his his problem is that he would read stories in the papers like the one that inspired Polly, and he would feel it as though it was something that had happened to him. Mm. Yeah, I mean, and even when it does get to the darker segments, where I think Chris Novoselic, who bass player for Nirvana, if you don't know. Um, says in an interview where, um, like, when Bleach got first released their debut record and how it got slaughtered by the, by the press, saying now it's, like, primitive. Yeah. Um, Chris says that if one thing, if there was one thing that Kurt hated, he hated being humiliated. Hmm, yeah. And, you know, and that's quite revealing when it's also uh, paired against, like, someone who's also, like, very concerned about women, who's very concerned about mental health, who knows that he's going down this very rooted dark path and it's only going to end in chaos and turmoil. Um, there's still light beacons of light in here that again it goes back to like the stuff with the home footage of like Kurt and Courtney together, things like that. So yeah. you do you do find like this newfound respect for the guy after watching this. Has Dave Grohl ever revealed why he's not present in the interviews for this? I think it's because it was more like a last-minute thing. Grohl was interviewed uh, for it, um, but um, for some reason, I think Morgan left it on the cutting room floor because he just that there was just enough material that he found, you know, through it. But I think I remember reading an interview that Dave Grohl did actually manage to catch a bit of it on, like, say, like HBO because this is a HBO film as well, and he just said, "Look, I, I just can't watch this because it's just like." too i can't remember if it was like say too painful for me or too which is understanding enough yeah you know? completely makes sense yeah so it's it's something along those lines again i'm paraphrasing here i don't know the full backstory but it's something along that so i think it, it got past my defenses a bit because like say i was I, I remember when that first trawl through the nirvana archive started you know with the journals and with the box sets and i i just felt that, that was less than a decade after he died, and I just felt so uncomfortable about it. I was mm. very much in the mindset of, uh, have you heard the story about Mark Everett from the band Eagles when he was asked Ooh. to provide a cover quote for Kurt Cobain's journals? Right, yeah. And he just, he saw it and he thought it was like like horrifying, that it was so voyeuristic and he hated the idea of someone doing it. Um so his quote for the cover, which they did not use for some reason, was, I hope no one does this to me when I kill myself. <laughs> um, <laughs> and, 
and I was very much of that mind. But I, I do think that something like this, despite the fact that it has been contentious, despite the fact that some of the people involved with it have uh, criticised it, and some people who were around at the time have said that bits of it aren't true, I think it redeems that period of the Nirvana retrospective cycle, and I think it, it is ultimately a, a sensitive and interesting film. Mm, I completely agree. I think watching this a second time, I've, I've come to appreciate, uh, again, I've, I've always been a Nirvana fan, but I love um, like the guy even more, because, you know, yeah, he may be a voice of his generation, and of course, you know, it's not just him in that band as well. There's Chris Novoselic, there's Dave Grohl, you have Pat Smear, who joined, like, again, he would go on to form Foo Fighters together with him and Dave Grohl. Um, there's just, like, this energy with the performance that, look, many of you are not, are not going to like this, but the few of you who do, you know, it's just going to be a matter of, like, time and energy. And I, I think there's a lot of patience and virtue with that band in particular. I think it is one of those things where you look back at it and you're surprised that something that extreme got on the radio. And maybe every generation has things like this, and it's only possible to realise it once you're like way past it. I think we will look back at music now and listen to sort of stuff like Lana Del Rey or Billie Eilish and think, wow, something so like low key and intimate got on the radio. But now mm. it's just like, it's what surrounds you. You know, it's hard to pick that out. But certainly the idea that a band of such independent roots, the idea of a working class band who had, as you say, that ethos that they know a lot of what they're doing is going to really piss people off, made it big, even briefly is a really exciting thing. Mm, yeah, very flash in the pan kind of moment, and it paid off incredibly well, yeah. Yeah. And I, also, I think the, the like testament to Nirvana is, even though there were some other bands who were involved with grunge or who were peripheral to grunge, who were very, very good, man, did his death let the air out of the balloon of that scene. You're in, it did, yeah, yeah. And it's it's a shame because, as I say, there were some sort of terrific bands involved with it, and you know, but it, it's like I just remember after his death, any band who started out and who had that kind of grungy sound would immediately get a roasting in the press. Like it was like, mm. oh look, who's come to take the crown? And you know. So, some of it was bad. I, I think Little Pink Stars by Radish is a pretty good song, but <laughs> they were absolutely roasted as Nirvana copyists and never went anywhere. Yeah. I think the only other grunge band that I love, I mean, I like Pearl Jam, the early stuff. I, I, I don't really listen to the later stuff anymore because they, they went a bit too mainstream for my liking, but I yeah, still like yeah. the early stuff. I think the only other grunge band that I can properly say that I love is probably Soundgarden. Yeah, Sam Garden had some very good songs, didn't they? Yeah. Mm -hmm. yeah, I think... yeah, and again, yeah, and again, similar to Bain, Chris Cornell, Jesus Christ, when he died, I mean, oh, I, I was really upset, yeah. I think I can tie this up because it, it's just struck me that there are some sort of grunge-adjacent bands who I love. I guess Pavement were part of that era but were not really a grunge band. Uh, I do adore Pavement, but... Mm. I guess the grunge band that I love the most, and what a way to tie this up this is, is Hole. Mm. 
I didn't nice. ma- didn't mention this at the start of the podcast because some people would have turned off straight away. But I think <laughs> "Live Through This" is a fucking great album. Uh, so is "Pretty on the Inside," and I think that there is a part of me with whatever bullshit Courtney Love pulled after that, she will always be in credit based on those two albums. Yeah. One final note to end on, and this is probably one of my favourite Kurt Cobain quotes. He got interviewed, I can't remember what it was, like some Canadian broadcast television, um, and he was discussing about lawsuits regarding, like, Nevermind and, you know, all the shit that he endured because Mm. of it. They said, well, we were supposed to hire a lawyer, but instead we decided to hire a hitman instead. (laughs) And and, um, the interviewer just went, said, what? And then he just went, nothing. (laughs) (laughs) See, the, the danger is if Courtney Love said that, you would not know if she was joking. Yes, exactly. <laughs> yeah, that is a great note to end on. Um, listeners, if you enjoyed this podcast, you can donate to our Patreon at www.patreon.com slash thegeekshow, where you get our other movie podcast director's lottery, my Doctor Who reviews, and a bonus episode of Pop Screen every month. And I think we will be doing another Nirvana-themed episode, so there'll be there'll be more on mm. that uh, in that Topic, vein. Yeah. Mm. Mm, I'll leave it there, but it will probably involve like some British documentarian. Wink, wink. P- p- possibly, yes. Uh, a balding man with a cassette recorder. Um... And, a bit, and a boom mic. <laughs> and a boom mic. Oh, I know who it is. I know who it is. It's Louis Ferrero. I'm waiting for the episode of him already. <laughs> oh, dear. Um, but yes, uh, please do donate to our Patreon or just tell your friends if you enjoyed it. Give us a review wherever you found this podcast. But until then, uh, that's been your lot from Pop Screen. I've been Graham. And I've been Aidan. And we'll be back next week. 